Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. We have a very special guest with us today. We have Michael Amster. He's a physician and faculty member at Turo School of Medicine. With 20 years as a pain management specialist, he's currently the founding director of the pain management department at Santa Cruz Community Health. He's a practitioner of meditation for over 30 years. He's also a certified yoga and meditation teacher, and he splits his time between clinical work, research on awe, teaching mindfulness, and leading awe-inspiring retreats around the world. His new book, co-authored with Jake Eagle, available now, is called The Power of Awe, Overcome Burnout and Anxiety, Ease Chronic Pain, Find Clarity and Purpose in Less Than One Minute Per Day. Welcome, Michael. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you, Alan, for the warm introduction, and great to meet you as well, Leon, and I'm just thrilled to meet all of your uh, community of listeners and to be here today and hopefully talk about some some moments of awe. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And then so in his in their book, Michael writes, or Michael and Jake write, awe is worth exploring, not just for the fleeting sense of elation it offers, but because of its lasting effects. There are many explanations for why we need awe in our emotional toolkit. In addition to the benefits we covered earlier, researchers have learned that awe does the following, encourages curiosity, inspires energy, especially when experienced in nature, quiets the mind's monkey chatter, calms the nervous system, reduces inflammation, makes us less materialistic and more generous, increases spirituality as we experience being part of something larger than self, diminishes our sense of self so that we are less self-absorbed, softens hardcore convictions, making us more open-minded and less rigid in our thinking, leaves us feeling more present and patient, leads us to more friendly, humble, and to be more friendly, humble, and connection, connected to others, improves life satisfaction. All these benefits are worth, worthwhile in and of themselves. When combined, they make us better, more interesting people, which helps us achieve what most of us long for, yet are perpetually baffled by. Mm-hmm. All helps us improve our relationships and inspires us to feel happy, even thrilled with being alive. So this is great, especially in the context of psychotherapy. I mean, you just pretty much articulated, I would, I would argue, the vast majority of psychotherapeutic goals. When people come into therapy, they're like, hey, I want to feel all of these things, right? So can you tell us a little bit about how awe is like this all-encompassing thing, which somehow seems to capture all of these goals in one? Well, um, yeah, that's quite a list. <laughs> I'm like, wow, we wrote that. That's incredible. Uh, <laughs> so awe is what is called a pro-social emotion. And what that means is, and the science has shown this, is that within awe is embedded all these other positive emotions that we know improve human health and spiritual health, physical health, emotional health. So awe, for example, we know gives us um, an experience of being generous and wanting to give and be kind to others. Uh, Awe makes us uh, more open-minded. So we're willing to look at other people's points of view and be able to hold them all together and not be so judgmental, like what we're seeing right now with all the divisiveness in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, Awe gives us uh, the ability to feel more love and connection, uh, less loneliness and improved mental health with less depression, anxiety, burnout. So it is really this master key emotion that is core to living what one would say an awakened life. It's it's really a cornerstone emotion to what's most important about being human. Yeah, and I gotta say, you know, uh, from reading the book, I actually have the uh, audible version of the book. It was great to listen to. Uh, one thing that I could really appreciate is the awe method, right? It's actually quite, quite. It's very um, 
I would say very simple um, to actually sort of execute on, right? There are many books um, maybe that talk about how to be maybe mindful or um, uh, en engage and, and be present to the moment and, and things of that nature, right? However, not a lot of them, uh, beyond like giving methods like, let's say, meditation, right? Which, by the way, uh, most people, um, you know, when they're told to uh, meditate, maybe they're told, oh, you know, uh, take maybe 10 minutes out of the day, 15 minutes out of the day, uh, you know, uh, sit down, you know, back erect, uh, take breaths in, try to pay attention to, you know, to your body and things. That, I mean, there are different methods. It's more of a disconnection to, from reality. None, no, 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 not necessarily. Mm. I mean, there are disso dissociative uh, methods of um, engaging with the present moment, even though that sounds kind of uh, oxymoronic. I don't mm. know, something doesn't sound right about that. Mm -hmm. But there's different me methods to meditation. A lot of them are about engaging with the present moment. Mm -hmm. The idea, though, what I like about um, the awe method is you know, it's it's uh, attention, weight, and exhale, right? Uh, one thing that's very interesting about the way it's framed in the book, it actually feels uh, like it's almost like made uh, like into a sort of a simpler method to engage with the present moment and actually kind of get that feeling of that sort of flow experience or uh, or that feeling of awe rather. Um, could you maybe uh, expand on uh, what the awe method is and then um, how we could apply that in order to get that feeling of awe or experience of awe? So the awe method is what we've done is we've taken the word awe, A-W-E, and we've breaking it into uh, an acronym. And then there's these three core steps. Um, and we sort of stumbled upon this. Uh, Jake and I are both mindfulness teachers of many years. And our experience was, and I'm sure maybe the two of you can relate to this, that people often struggle with a sustained mindfulness practice over a long period of time um, because it takes a lot of effort, concentration and time. And um, once you maybe deviate from the path, you're often really critical and hard on yourself and judgmental. And then it sort of gets you into this bad spiral. And I work with chronic pain patients and it's really hard, if not impossible for some patients to sit for 10 minutes, let alone five minutes a day. So we were really curious about micro meditation practices. And at first we called our work microdosing mindfulness. <laughs> um, and we were wanting to find that ideal brief mindfulness practice that would take five to 15 seconds to do that you could do anywhere at any time. And it turned out that we discovered this awe method when I was out visiting Hawaii, uh, Jake in Hawaii, he's out there as a psychotherapist. And we were exploring different ways of getting to that state of what I, the Buddha talks about that kind of state of Nirvana, that state of, of the mind quieting down, a state of presence, mm -hmm. a state of inner peace, an experience where time expands and we're just like fully there with the oneness of all being. And that is what the emotion of awe is about. That's what, when we have that profound moment of awe, we feel all that. Time stands still when we're in awe. Um, we're deeply peaceful and present. And so uh, the key thing is, is that we can't go to the Grand Canyon or Hawaii every day. We have, we live in cities, we have jobs, mm -hmm. we have families. And so how do you experience a profound moment of awe, but in the ordinary times of our lives? And so that's what the awe method is about. It's about teaching you 
how to open your awareness, your senses, your focusing your mind so that you can see the extraordinary and the ordinary on a daily basis. Hmm. Um, so I, I just want to share this one quote I really love. Um, sure. And it really inspires for me. It's a quote by Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a, for those of you that don't know, he was a contemporary of Martin Luther King Jr., um, big civil rights activist, a very spiritual man. And he wrote in terms of the idea of awe, and I think he's kind of known in the world as the, the awe rabbi, <laughs> that our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. Get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. Hmm. And so what we're doing in this practice is we are training your eyes, your ears, your skin to begin to see the world in childlike wonder again, to just live life in that radical amazement. So I'll talk you through the practice um, for the listener. Uh, I just want to give a little bit of a um, a little caveat, just to be careful. Some mm. people, when they experience this moment of awe, it's pretty profound. So I know when I listen to podcasts, I'm driving my car. Mm. So just be careful. We call it an awegasm when you have a really extreme moment of awe. Um, you might want to <laughs> be listening to this at home. Mm. And also we can go to our website. We have recordings there and free practices as well to support you at thepowerofawe.com. Um, so the A stands for attention. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll just talk about the practice as a whole, and then we'll kind of walk through it a little bit quicker because it really takes five to 15 seconds to do. Mm -hmm. okay. So A is attention. What you're doing is you're bringing your full undivided attention to something that you value, appreciate, and find amazing. So just look in the space that you're in right now. If you're home, you can look at a piece of art. If you're out in nature, just look at the trees or look at the animals, the birds, the sky. If you can't, Think of anything, you can close your eyes and bring up a memory of the past of someone you love and care about, like a grandparent. Mm. And then just really be with that full undivided attention. And then the W stands for wait. And what you're doing in that moment of waiting is you're giving yourself this gift of being fully present in that moment for yourself. It's synonymous to when you're walking with a friend through a doorway and they are ahead of you and they hold the door open and they're waiting for you and you get to go through the door and someone's caretaking you. Hmm. Well, in this moment, you're gonna caretake yourself. It's like, ah, oh, I'm giving myself this gift of really experiencing this juicy moment of awe, of amazement. And then the E stands for two things. One is a nice long exhale out. And when we take that nice long exhale out, you can even do it with me right now. Like we just say like a nice long, ah, like you're at the doctor's office. <laughs> ah. And just notice how you feel right now. You're automatically, your nervous system resets. You're, you're stretching out your diaphragm with that long exhale out and you stimulate your vagus nerve, which is the autonomic nervous system's master computer. And you're resetting into that rest repair state of healing. And then the E also stands for expansion. Because when you have a moment of awe, we experience a sense of vastness. Our self in a way gets bigger. We feel connected to the universe or to God or subconsciousness. But you actually kinesthetically will feel tingles and chills when you have those profound moments of awe. 
It's like you're letting the prana or chi that it just flows out through your body. Mm -hmm. We actually, as scientists measure what's called piloerection. It's when those little hairs on your arm stand up and you get this when you have a moment of awe because the energy is literally expanding out of your body. So we're going to cultivate that consciously and just let that energy expand. So that's what the practice is about. Very simple. Once you get it down, it takes like five, 10, 15 seconds to do. Mm -hmm. So let's practice this together right now. Yes. So just in the space you're in, find something that you value, appreciate and find amazing. Bring your full undivided attention to that. Mm -hmm. okay. You're going to your phone? Whatever. <laughs> Listen, and then really... waiting. <laughs> Sorry. Let's do the microphone. I mean, we use these a lot. Yeah, be in awe of your microphone. I'm looking here, I'm in my office. I'm like in awe of all these colors of Sharpies I have <laughs> and how creative they all are. And just fully be with that. Bring your full sense of self and attention to that. Just waiting for a breath or two. A nice inhale in and a longer exhale out. And letting that experience expand, fill you up, even get bigger than you. And then just check in and notice how you feel. How do you guys feel right now? I, I can't stop smiling. I'm just, <laughs> like, I don't know. I do have a, like a natural feeling of elation, actually. Uh, there, uh -huh. there were times when I was reading the, the book that I would have it and I would not have it when I was following along. But uh, just now that guided actual uh, process really did the trick. Yeah. Hmm. How about you for you, Leon? <laughs> so I'm feeling just more so relaxed. I wouldn't say elation is uh, the accurate, uh, I guess, sort of descriptor here. Yeah. So what we talk about in the book is that there is what we call a spectrum of awe when people learn this practice. Um, all the way from the very like kind of mundane sublime where you just feel like a little bit of a shift of your level of awareness or consciousness, feeling more calm, more present, all the way to kind of this extreme where you'll have what we call an orgasm where you literally feel this big energetic release in your body um, and it's sort of an energized excitement. Mm -hmm. So awe is a really unique emotion in that it's sort of a mixture of that vagus nerve parasympathetic state with a little bit of sympathetic activation, not like a fight, flight, freeze activation, but, but what they call in polyvagal theory, like this pro-social state of engagement. Um, and that's often where we feel that sense of connection, that sense of oneness to the world around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And would you say in, in cultivating awe? So, I, I mean, there might be several points to it because uh, the way I kind of think about it in terms of, or in the context of, let's say, Buddhist thought, you know, psychedelic uh, experiences slash theory, and this is what I really want to get into. Would you say the main purpose of it is to cultivate that sense of oneness, or would you say sort of even deeper than that in some particular way? Are you talking about in terms of the awe practice or in terms yeah. of psychedelics? Yeah, yeah. So the well, I, you know, it's interesting. I actually would have uh, pieced the two together, but would you say that they're different then? Yeah, I mean, they're yeah, they're different for sure. Um, in the of sense course, that, yeah. um, well, so psychedelics is a very diverse, uh, potentially includes a lot of different substances. Um, they have very different. Uh, processes that go on in the brain. So, you know, psilocybin is very different than using MDMA than using ketamine or other types of therapy. They all have sort of different purposes and goals and pathways, but sure. regarding the awe method, um, there's both, I believe a personal goal, which is to shift one's level of consciousness, um, out of sort of this ordinary state that we live day in, day out. We call that in our book, we talk about levels of consciousness and this three level of consciousness model that my co-author Jake and his wife, Hannah created. 
that day in and day out, we spend 99.9% of our time in what he calls safety consciousness. And that's the, the state in which when we're being productive and we're working and also the state when we're feeling stuck and we're anguishing and we're feeling depressed or that fight, flight, freeze response. And then the next level higher is the state of what's called heart consciousness, which is when we enter that state of gratitude and appreciation. Mm -hmm. And then awe takes us into the state of what's called spacious consciousness. And spacious consciousness is that nonverbal, very present moment state of experiencing the kind of oneness to connection to the universe, the deep sense of peace and pure presence. Um, we can get there through meditation practice, through chanting, through religious prayer practices, um, you know, flow state practices. But we believe that the awe method is really the fastest way that we know possible to get to that state of spaciousness kind of in an instant. Mm -hmm. um, and the nice thing is, is that once we get to that state, it has this sort of backwashing effect and it does impact then like when we're in that state of safety consciousness. I, mean, I can give like a little example that I had in my life just recently where sure. I was having to make a big decision about a particular thing and I felt stuck. And I was like stuck on this for weeks, literally. And then I, one morning got up and I was like, I just felt determined finally to sort of resolve this. And I spent that morning doing some physical exercise. I am a big swimmer and surfer and got out and moved my body, but I was also like intentionally using the awe practice, the awe method to get me into that state of spaciousness. And when I could enter that state of spaciousness, it had this like trickle down effect where I was able to see like, okay, I can solve this problem and make a decision and move out of that stuck space because I didn't want to be in that stuck space anymore. When I can enter into spaciousness, I can see the bigger picture, the big totality of life. And that that issue became very small and I was able to just sort of take care of it like that. It was like simple like that. So um, it's a very powerful practice. It is um, what I've learned both from our, our research that we've done on hundreds of patients, as well as the people I've taught this to over the years and working mm -hmm. with people as that it's similar to a, a deep spiritual practice where you're sort of peeling off layer after layer and it gets deeper and deeper to the point where for myself personally, I don't need to use the awe method. It's the awe method are training wheels to give a practitioner the ability to start to find awe in the ordinary times of their lives. But ultimately the goal is, is you don't need the, the practice that awe will appear spontaneously. Like you just start to live life in a state of constant wonder and amazement. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, I'm not saying like I'm some guru, no, but I spend most, a lot of my day in a state of amazement and wonder. And it's just, and it's effortless. One really nice thing about this awe practice different than traditional mindfulness practices is that there is an immediate reward. When you have an experience of awe, you feel good. It's, you just feel great. Like you both said, it's like, oh, I feel relaxed. I feel like some exhilaration. I'm kind of giggling. It's a very, um, a very positive emotional state. But when we do a, a 10 minute sit mindfulness, like you know, Vipassana meditation or breath awareness meditation, and we're having a kink in our neck and our back's hurting and our monkey mind is out of control. And it's like, you're just can't stop obsessing about 
what you know you got to do later tonight or tomorrow sure. you won't you go out of that meditation and you actually feel more agitated have you ever experienced that before wow. i mean i well, sure have so i wouldn't say that i come out of it feeling more agitated but i do agree with you that yeah during the actual meditation like there are either intrusive thoughts or you kind of get taken away from actually completely paying attention to the practice as you're doing it. But what I love about the awe method is, and you guys phrase it this way in the book too, which is like, it's literally micro dosing awe, which I feel like is actually a great way, like a great entry into um, actually having that experience and knowing what it feels like. Um, otherwise, sometimes somebody might be introduced to something like the Vipassana uh, meditation or pranic breathing or whatever, and then maybe they don't understand it right away. And because they don't understand it right away, they, they don't have a path anymore to something that, that was you know uh, attempting to be introduced into their life that could have been good for them, maybe, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that I really like, and this is kind of tying to something that uh, Leon was asking, which is like... Um, uh, well, you're sort of asking, you know, is all like psychedelics or something? Yeah, yeah. So, so my my question was, was there kind of a major overlap between the two ideas? Where on the one hand, and I'm not saying everybody, but when people take psychedelics, the idea is like, well, I feel so disconnected from the world. I feel like there's no sort of spiritual, you know, doesn't necessarily mean religious uh, dimension to it. Meaning that it's all kind of just like these isolated material kind of bodies or holes. And I wondered if all was supposed to be like a psychedelic would take that away or help you see beneath or beyond that veil. Okay. Well, okay. So here, this is. My my own personal, you know, insight on this, which is, um, there, you can say that there is uh, an end goal of this sort of vastness that you experience uh, from awe that you could experience from a psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. But um, as Michael, as you were saying, there are different kinds of psychedelics, right? So, for example, if somebody I've never done or taken ketamine, but for example, to my understanding, that is a dissociative, right? So. Uh, that's not necessary. So you might get this like amazing uh, experience out of it. Um, but, you know, maybe it's just sort of a different quality of mm. experience than maybe you would have from uh, a psilocybin or uh, LSD or something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But what's interesting is people's motivations for why they get into these practices. I mean, they're actually just as vast as the effects of these different practices. Like one person, like, for example, in the book, uh, it's mentioned that uh, this can help people with chronic pain, right? So if somebody is dealing with chronic pain and, you know, they, of course, there's, you know, if they're prescribed medications, they take those medications. If, if it's, you know, something that's prescribed to them or uh, they, they do the probably the normal things, right? Mm -hmm. But there are other aspects to chronic pain, which are very, very hard to deal with. Mm -hmm. Like if you... Uh, it can really like be a drain on how you like uh, engage with life. Yeah. Right? Wow. If you, if you have pain all the time, like, Oh, uh, you have back pain. Yeah. Right. Uh, maybe because your focus is always directly on that pain and then resisting the pain by not wanting to have the pain anymore. And it becomes a sort of like endless loop of like, a, or a narrative. Yeah, like life is terrible. This is never going to get better. Some, something like that. Mm -hmm. Then you could imagine that the, choices or the path that that person would take from that sort of a foundation it's probably not good but if somebody found a way to sort of 
maybe through an awe experience, oh, they could sort of uh, zoom out of their pain. Maybe right. that's not everything that's taking up their current uh, attention. Yeah. That can free up some resources to engage with life differently. Right, right. And and then actually, now that we're on this topic, I, I, I thought we were going to go somewhere else with this. Wait, can I actually then just say one thing? So is it that you're ultimately saying because somebody's struggling with pain, is that the interpretation of the world and something like what we're talking about here, a feeling of, you know, a sense of wonderment or amazement around it, I guess, uh, because of the fact that you're in so much pain, that's not really possible, or at least it doesn't seem like Ah, uh, Well, that's why I wanted to True. bring this to Michael. So I, I was actually going to go into the different uh, intentions people might have with dealing with trying to engage in these practices. Mm -hmm. But uh, instead, uh, Michael, could you talk about how um, the experience of awe actually the, the role that it plays in reducing pain, uh, pain, and then how um, uh, cytokines uh, play into it? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So one of the things we talk about in our book is this idea of selective perception. Yeah. And so that we can really only bring our attention to one thing pretty much fully at one time. Um, we can try to multitask, but it's often quite hard to do so. But ultimately, our attention is often focused on one thing. And so what the awe practice does for people with chronic pain is, is that it does take you out of that, that constant obsessional state of focusing on the experience of pain. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a, a respite. Um, for the moment it does definitely when you're practicing the 10 to 15 second practice, but because you're resetting your nervous system, it does have what I would say is a lingering effect and repeatedly dosing this multiple times a day has a cumulative effect in a beneficial way. In fact, um, in our research studies, so we did uh, two very large studies, one with primary care patients and another with 200 doctors and nurses on the front line during the COVID pandemic that were super stressed out and dealing with burnout. And what we learned was that the more times the frequency that you dose awe in a day, the more benefit you get. So there is a dose response and it has a cumulative effect, which is just really quite remarkable. Similar to like taking a medication in a way, uh, we think of the awe method as um, a therapeutic intervention for, for pain and for depression, anxiety as well. Um, and then ultimately what happens in terms of the physiology, um, which you brought up, sort of there's, there's, uh, three main areas that we think of there, how this is working on our, our neurophysiology. Mm -hmm. So one is, um, you're stimulating the, the vagus nerve, the, the rest and repair state of your nervous system, opposite of the sympathetic response that flight, flight, freeze, and when we're chronically stressed and we're chronically in pain, we're often in that chronic elevated state. Patients' heart rates are up, their blood pressure is up, the respiratory rate is up. And what we see with the awe method is all these measures are reversed and people are definitely a lot more relaxed. So that's helpful. Um, we also see changes in what's called the default mode network. That's the commonly called like the monkey mind or the, the, the wandering mind that's has those many thousands of random thoughts throughout the day. And when we're in a state of awe, that those parts, it's actually not one part, but it's made up of different subsections in the brain. Those, mm -hmm. those areas quiet down significantly. It is said that the DMN, the default mode network can take up to 90% of the brain's resources of energy. And I heard you talk about that, about sort of resources. Mm -hmm. And when we're ruminating on something, 
like pain, it's sucking up a lot of energy and a lot of resources. And we're also just getting in that rut and that cycle you're talking about that just spirals and spirals. Now, the third thing that I think is just so awesome around the story of how all works is around these inflammatory cytokines that you just thought about. I'm oh, sorry, you brought up about. So I want to just share a little about what cytokines are because the story behind them is an example of awe. It's just, if you think about this for a moment. Mm -hmm. So the earth is about 4 billion years old and life on earth is about a billion years old. And when the first single cellular organisms on earth came into being with the conditions finally being right for life to come into this planet, those first organisms, they communicated with each other through what are called cytokines and they're protein molecules and our cells, every cell has receptors on them. And those early cells that were monocellular organisms, they had cytokine receptors and they would communicate. Now there's basically two types of cytokines. There's cytokines that say threat, danger, mm -hmm. something bad is coming our way. And then there's cytokines that mean it's safe. And think about it, our nervous system, our immune system, it's all based on the same technology of threat versus safety. Everything is like based upon this whole billion year technology. And so we are made up of billions upon billions of cells that have this same ancient technology. And from modern day research that's been done by my colleagues at the University of California, Berkeley, published in 2018, they were teaching people different positive emotions and other, some negative emotions, and then drawing blood values of inflammatory cytokines. These are the cytokines. It's particular one is interleukin six. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the big bad boy of the gang leader of all these inflammatory cytokines. This was involved like with COVID people dying of cytokine storm. It was because of highly elevated IL six. Mm -hmm. So what was found was that awe was the only positive emotion that statistically was significant and lowered in the blood when people experienced different positive emotions, it was only awe that lowered inflammation, mm -hmm. um, which is just such an amazing story to think about. We think we, we're thinking in this experience, we're experiencing this thing in our brain, this feeling of awe through a practice and our glial cells, the cells in our brain are lowering the excretions of inflammatory cytokines, which circulate in our body and tell us that we're in a place of safety and mm -hmm. healing versus a place of chronic inflammation and cellular destruction and infection and other types of bad processes. So it's, um, it's quite a phenomenal story. I mean, I just think it's like, wow, that, that you know, how powerful this emotion is. And one of our future research studies is actually the plan is is to look at people post heart attacks. Mm. Uh, my my colleague uh, at UC Davis, who's the head of cardiology research, Dr. Um, Javier, he and I are, we just finished a long COVID study looking at how awe is helping people with long COVID. Well, awe is very likely to be a key part of people's healing from a heart attack. You could teach mm. people quickly about having an experience of awe, it can lower those inflammatory cytokines because IL-6 is highly elevated right after a, a myocardial infarction. Hmm. So that's that's a bit of the story of what we understand about how how awe is working. But um, yeah, it's uh, it like I said, it's probably and we we titled our book the power of awe. It is 
really the most powerful of all human emotions in terms of the impact on our health. Yeah. And do you feel like in terms of the way we under, or we're supposed to understand it, is it supposed to be kind of an adjunct to modern medicine that the idea isn't necessarily replacing one thing with another, where we're saying, okay, you know, kind of get rid of all the pain doctors in order to start a meditation practice. What you're saying, I'm assuming, is that when it comes to something like awe, if you incorporate it within the modern medical practices, that it essentially becomes this wonderful addition. Sure. I mean, that's the plan. And we think of this as just one of the tools, many mm -hmm. tools that we have to help people. So um, with chronic pain, I, as a pain management specialist, I, I do do procedures and I do implant spinal cord stimulators and all these kind of high-tech devices. But right now, as we're talking after we're done tonight, I have to do a recording for a, I run these eight week long chronic pain groups through my clinic where I work. And I oh, take wow. 20 patients through a, a really deep dive into awe and helping them with their different you know, negative thinking patterns and their, their, their challenging anxiety and how awe can help. And I think of awe, um, very is in our program. One of the things we also add, we have acupuncture as part of our program. So the patients come in, we do community, what's called community acupuncture. So their patients are all in a big room. They all get needles in them, which acupuncture is a form of energy medicine and it's working on the chi or the prana of moving energy in the body that's stagnant or blocked mm. from the pain. And then I'm teaching patients to do mindful practices like qigong, just moving energy in the body, some gentle stretching, and then awe, which is really moving energy in the body as well. It's moving energy in the in the cerebral part for sure that is gets stuck and stagnant through uh, recurrent, repetitive, obsessive thought patterns, mm -hmm. but it's also, we you know, physiologically moving the energy through the, the experience of the energy in our extremities and our whole spinal physiology. So, um, I, I love the personally as a, as a physician, who's also a yogi mindfulness teacher. Like I love it when we can marry the West and the East, so to speak, and really help our patients more fully. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we're definitely in the model. We're not in the model anymore of just throwing people opiates, All hoping right. to solve a problem. It doesn't work. Um, and a big missing pieces. And I'm sure you could agree, Leon, as a psychotherapist, like we got to help people that are suffering with their chronic illnesses. It's not just a physical thing. We need to throw pills at them, but they need the psycho-spiritual aspect addressed as well equally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then since mentioning, you know, we're mentioning therapy, then I'd wonder in terms of actual the stress, anxiety, and the cortisol levels, what have you found? I mean, if you have done any research on it, what have been the connections between all cortisol and even like the inflammation levels known to be associated with it, high degrees of it? Well, we actually haven't measured cortisol levels. And I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think about the past studies I've read in the field. I can't recall off the top of my head if there has been one in cortisol. Mm -hmm. It's actually a very, um, challenging measure because it changes and spikes quickly and drops. Um, but like a good example of, I would say sort of a, a larger picture of stress is looking at heart rate variability, hmm. right? So, and that's, and that's sort of the beat to beat variability of the, of the, of the heart. And we know that that is a sign of what's called coherence. Um, when there is a balance between kind of the, the mind, mind body in terms of a, a healing resonant, so to speak of, 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 uh, optimization within the body and the mm -hmm. mind. So that to me would be a more important measure. And we, and that had, there has been look at heart rate variability with, 
within awe, within gratitude, and you know that that's effective. Mm-hmm. And what about the relation to inflammation? Inflammation? Yeah. Oh, that would be the example I just gave a little few minutes ago around cytokines and interleukin six mm-hmm. being measured and shown that it lowers inflammation in the body. Oh, I got you. Okay, yeah, I'm just thinking yeah. of the connection with that and stress, because I mean, from what we know, at least with some studies, it shows that, yeah, inflammation and stress, high cortisol levels are related to, uh, related to one another. And then, so mm-hmm. I was wondering if there's kind of like a, a sort of a triad here of influence where you could kind of see the three working together in some, you know, some, some version of a correlation. Well, I think, I think it it's fair to say that there would be, a, I think, I mean, I, I, I don't know the literature uh, of connecting cortisol and, and inflammation. It sounds like you you have some idea that there is a correlation yeah. connection between the two. So it would make sense to me since all lowers inflammation that it would lower sort of those cortisol stress responses. Yeah, that's um, what I was wondering. Mm-hmm. And what, what I love about this work that we're teaching <clears throat> and what we did was in our study is we said, hey, try this. In a, we taught a 21-day program. So we asked patients to practice just three times a day and the practice, once you get it down, it takes about 15 seconds to do. So we said, spend a minute a day practicing this over 21 days. And then what we found, for example, was a 35% reduction in depression symptoms. Hmm. And this is at the height of the pandemic in June of 2020, when people were actually getting more stressed, there was like the race riots going on. And you know, Trump was telling everyone to inject bleach in their bodies and take a I don't know, like the, the chemical to clean out fish tanks or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, and people were super stressed out. And we actually saw an improvement in depression during this time with our study. So um, what we've asked people basically to do in terms of understanding like the neuroscience of this is that we're, we're taking this temporary state, which is that mo- brief moment of awe. And by microdosing it multiple times a day, it becomes a trait, it becomes a part of who you are. And that's that's a key idea within the sort of neuroscience and understanding neuroplasticity is that our nervous system is malleable. And if we put effort and some time into developing a practice and mastering that within three weeks, we see significant change in one's long-term physiology, as long as you keep the practice up. Hmm. Interesting. And then if there's any, what would be the chain or the relationship between awe and let's say chronic experiences of awe and actual personality change? Well, what do you mean by personality change? I'm just yeah, curious. So, you mean yeah? So, so in terms of personality, I mean, so not only just behaviors. I mean, that's what people tend to think about. So, the way we interact with other people, obviously, the way we interact with the world more broadly, our perspective of the world more generally, the way, let's say, our you constant or chronic emotional states, uh, pretty much the way even our minds or yeah, so our minds interact with our decision making, the decisions obviously that we make. So, the way that we think of just generally and broad, broadly, I guess, the psyche. Well. Within our, our personal research, we looked at <clears throat> depression, anxiety measures, loneliness measures, mm-hmm. um, chronic pain and of different body parts measures, overall sense of well-being. Uh, we measured one's um, ease and ability to practice a mindfulness practice because it is a, such an easy practice to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not, let's say, look at per se, like one's like change of attitude of the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know from other people's research, as I said, awe is a pro-social emotion. So like one of my studies that I really like that's been done by my colleagues is that they looked at people's political views. And by experiencing awe, uh, people tend to be more tolerant of mm-hmm. divergent views, 
more open-minded, accepting of other people's points of views, being able to see the totality of the whole picture. Um, so as the fact that it's a pro-social emotion, I think there is all these other positive impacts around generosity and compassion and worldview changing in a more positive way, a sense of oneness. Um, we also measure, I didn't bring this up, but around loneliness. Loneliness is epidemic. Mm. Um, it is said that loneliness is just as dangerous as smoking a pack of cigarette a day and can lower one's lifespan by up to 15 years wow. from being alone. And what's really unique about awe is you can physically be alone, but you don't feel alone when you practice awe because you feel connected to the oneness, mm -hmm. the vastness of the universe, all of life, to all of humanity, to all the animals, to our understanding of like gravity and astrophysics and all these things that when you really make this a part of who you are, this practice, you feel connected to something way vaster than the small, the small self. Um, and that's, that is so important for our, for healing right. to and feel safe and feeling connected. Absolutely. And actually, I mean, it, it actually makes sense, right? Like th think about it, right? If, if, for example, you know, uh, we're mostly almost always automatically kind of caught up in this uh, selective perception, right, of whatever the stimuli are in our uh, environment, or maybe past events going on in our head, maybe anxiety about the future, something like that, uh, or, 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 okay, depressive thoughts about something from the past. If you would take, you know, these trips uh, once in a while to this, this other uh, sort of I wouldn't call it a mindset, but it's kind of going outside of your mind, mm -hmm. right? Uh, going into this sort of vast experience, this flow state, this feeling of awe, mm -hmm. right? Of being something greater than, as Michael, as you said, it, the small self, right? If you keep taking trips away from that small self, it actually, you could even kind of reason it. You have to experience it, obviously, mm -hmm. to understand it really, what's, what's being discussed here. But you could even reason out that, ah, if I'm not always kind of stuck in this one particular perspective, then of course it makes sense to me that there might be other ways of thinking than how I'm currently thinking. Because mm -hmm. usually what ends up happening is somebody could be attached to their current worldview right. or current belief set or current identity, whether consciously or unconsciously, right? Usually, usually just sort of... That's implicit, right? Yeah, it's mm -hmm. implicit, right? But well, so if you keep, uh, you know, uh, kind of going outside of that uh, particular construct, that particular identity, then of course it makes sense, right? right? That uh, you wouldn't hold on to maybe uh, like you wouldn't be as stoutly believing certain political beliefs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You may not get into arguments with other people. You might see what their their side is about. Right. Why, right, why right. do they think the way that they think? Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like both of you pretty much answered my question. So the answer is yes, there is some sort of deep personality change because when I think about psychedelic use, I mean, obviously this doesn't always happen and this isn't always long-term. I mean, it kind of tends to fade over time, uh, but it does happen. Right. So uh, just using the framework of cognitive behavioral therapy, if you, let's say use some of these cognitive distortions, right? So 
The major ones we constantly see are like black and white thinking, us against them, good versus bad, etc. Sure. You see labeling, overgeneralizing, thinking, okay, you know, this is a bad person, uh, they're the evil ones, whatever. You think of personalizing, you know, this person did this to me, I can't believe this, yada, yada. Right. And so when you get psychedelic use, I mean, that's really the, the thing that I can speak on, right? I, I can't exactly speak too much on the all bad thing. But with psychedelic use, what you see is when people are able to step out of themselves, and let's say they go through, and you know, I get, just to be clear, there's very preliminary research on psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, so I'm not even necessarily advocating for it. But what I can say is, at least from the anecdotal evidence, what you see is people saying, oh, you know, when I went through this journey, what I realized, here's this thing that I took super personally, but then I came to understand, okay, this is how this parent who mistreated me, abused me, whatever, this is how they were struggling. So it wasn't really about me, even though I understand I obviously deserve better. I understand that this person wasn't able to give it to me. So that was depersonalizing, right? And then the black and white thinking that goes with, okay, you know, these people mistreated me, I'm the victim. And not to say that victimhood doesn't exist, but it sort of, it tends to at least to some extent kind of go further back down the scale and the person is able to say, okay, yeah, I was the victim and then this person was the victim. And there's this whole sea of complexity that doesn't necessarily exist in your daily life, you know? Because like if I'm walking down the street, it's very easy to separate people and things into categories and say, okay, this is this and that is that. So I get from what I'm getting from both of you is with the sense of awe, it is a lot like that psychedelic experience where you're able to see the broader perspective of just the universe and life and to see that, yeah, I mean, bad things obviously do happen, but even within that, there's so much nuance there. I, I have yeah. a simple model, maybe a way to look at this. Sure. What, I, I think it with what you're talking about. So let's say uh, a patient of mine who has chronic pain, who's had a trauma history, um, a tough life and all this stuff. And it's like their, their identity, who they are is made up of 10 parts. And you like, list, you know, the PTSD of childhood, the PTSD of their bad marriage, PTSD of this, their chronic pain, their morbid obesity, and maybe they have a little bit of good stuff. And the, those are make up their 10 parts of their identity. But then you start to become a practitioner of awe and you start to change your worldview and you start to see things in a new way. And it opens your eyes to wonder and amazement. And you start to appreciate music and food and sunsets and being outside in nature and short little walks you do with your dog. And so instead of having 10 parts of your identity, you now start to have 50 parts to your identity. Mm. And then soon you're gonna have 100 parts to your identity. Well, those 10 traumatic parts have been diluted. Mm. They don't have as much power. They don't have as much grab and pull on you. They're just become a smaller part. They're still there. I don't know if we have all the tools to erase things from people's past. Um, and I don't know if that's good to do. That's, I mean, that's a bigger, different conversation to have. Sure, sure. Um, but let's say, assuming we can't remove permanently parts of ourselves and they kind of linger around, what we're doing with the awe practice or, or maybe other spiritual practices that, that, increase the diversity of our identity is we then dilute down the potency, the impact of these past experiences so that now we can live our lives in this present moment because we have 90 parts of ourselves that are now this and just 10 parts of ourselves that were that. And that new 90 parts is what gives us that sense of connection and oneness and worldview and flexibility and openness and compassion and generosity. And it just grows and grows as the practice gets deeper. Oh, wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's a it, profound thing. 
Yeah, that's actually such a phenomenal way of framing it. So what I hear you saying, and I mean, obviously, please correct me if I'm wrong, but what I hear you saying is that with all, with the attention kind of uh, re-diverted from uh, the sort of the negativity or the things that you tend to focus on, you're essentially saying, again, going back into personality change, it's like you're sort of expanding your personality in a way because what you're saying to yourself, or I mean, I guess maybe what you're learning about yourself is that even though these parts are in some ways uh, kind of malleable, which is, I mean, I guess unfortunate, but also what you're saying is that they don't necessarily have to be as effective or influential or influential as they have been. So it's like as you cultivate the all method and you use it, you're essentially becoming fundamentally more and more aware of different parts of yourself and you're learning this isn't all I am. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And it's liberating when you realize that I am not just this this small self that I have labeled myself as. And I see this with, with chronic pain patients, how they say, you know, this is my oxycontin my norco you know they they so identify my pain my my this my story my trauma and i i see it with my patients where they come in and they're like shriveled up and they're so constricted in their identity and then over the, like this eight week journey it's like oh I start to open and like you're blossoming like a flower and they can actually start to bring in some goodness in their life. Um, hmm. And it's a, it's a gradual thing, you know, and sadly our culture is so fixated on the quick fix pill. Like that's why people are attracted to ketamine mm -hmm. uh, because you take this thing and you dissociate, have a dissociative experience like that and it only lasts maybe for 15 20 minutes yeah you feel an extensive euphoria but um i i don't i don't know this ketamine ketamine science research i i i, I am not an expert in that area uh but that's what i love about this practice because i think it's a sustainable practice this is a practice that we can take any where we go i can be at line at the grocery store and have a moment of awe appreciating all the different options of bubble gum that exists and being like, wow, look at all the colors and <laughs> yeah. flavors. Look at all the different mints. I can connect with the stranger in line and smile with them and they and have a brief conversation and smile back and say, hey, what what, what inspired smile on your day today? And then they like they smile because awe is contagious. Mm -hmm. When you share your awe in the world, you inspire on others and it goes on and on and on. So yes, this is a personal practice, but we have a much bigger call to action because we know the world is in a lot of trouble right now yeah. with everyone closed and constricted with their worldviews and their way of doing things and seeing things. And we need to open up and we're missing this. This is one of the most important of, of, of human emotions. It's probably one of the reasons why we survived as a species for so long. No, because the places of awe out there in the world are often the safest places to be well, yeah, the top of a mountain. Is it okay so if I ask a question? <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. So, yeah. So Michael, since you said that it's more sustainable, so here's the question I have. Uh, so, okay. In terms of the ketamine studies, what you tend to see, and look, I'm not an expert in this either from, from what little bit I know about it is that ketamine pretty much maps with a placebo effect. So it's after some time, I mean, like any other, let's say, you know, drug for lack of a better term, I mean, you're essentially building up a tolerance to it. And then after some point, I mean, it just doesn't become as effective. Right. And again, you see this with so many different, uh, let's say not medications, but you see this more so with different drugs, even though I don't really want to get into this territory. 
territory. But so my point is to say, so my point is to say that uh, in terms of the all method, so when you're saying it's more sustainable, so you're saying it isn't like a placebo effect. So is it that you're saying that when a person continues to cultivate the method, they don't essentially build a tolerance to it? Meaning as they kind of, if you kind of map it out over maybe a six month period, over a year, essentially what you're seeing is people are fundamentally having similar type of experiences repetitively. Well, what I've been seeing is, and and I don't have, we haven't done like six months or 12 months studies on this, but from my anecdotal experience of my patients, and I teach this, you know, through Zoom classes online. And so I have people that are practicing this from all over the world, mm -hmm. um, that it is a practice that gets deeper and deeper with time. Mm -hmm. Because as we start to, one of the principles we talk about in our book is this idea of presence versus force. In our Western culture, we live our lives with a lot of force, efforting, striving, pushing, striving. I know, I think you guys are on the East Coast. I mean, I know to, I go to New York, I feel a lot of force, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, versus when we are in awe, we experience presence and peace and calmness and a sense of connection and oneness. And when you practice this more and more over time, if you think of like sort of a scale of justice, you know, you're kind of going from okay, I've been living this life in force for for 50 years and my life is, my my people, my culture, the current culture is a very forceful one. And I've now been for four or five years cultivating more presence, more awe, more ease. And then the scales start to finally turn in the way of awe and it just builds and it goes more and more. And that, that old way of being sort of disappears and the practice just gets deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, it just, it, how, why would you think it's not possible to like live every day in radical amazement like uh Joshua Heschel speaks about yeah if we if we practice and that is our spiritual practice to live life every day with childlike wonder and amazement you know to look out the window and be like wow this this light i'm looking at right now that you can see in your sky in new york and i can see in california just traveled 100 million miles at the speed of light from from the sun and here we are seeing those photons and our retina is translating that. And we get this image in the back of our brain and we're conscious and we're here. Like, how can you not be in radical amazement about how amazing it is to be alive? Or the fact that the earth is in that right sweet spot. If we were 2 million miles closer to the sun, we'd be super frying hot and life wouldn't live here. And we're 2 million miles the other way, we'd be like a, a polar ice cap. The whole planet mm -hmm. would be frozen solid. Yeah. It's just, I mean, there's just so much to be in awe of all the time. I just, I, I just want people to get a taste of that and get to see that life is much more than like being on this, this hamster wheel of automatic living, but the, there's a, a breath, a width of life that is so rich and vast to be experienced in the, the day to day moments. That to me is what a life worth living a life I want to live, a life that I want my children to live. I want my neighbors to live. I want our country to live and the world to live. I mean, why are we fucking killing each other? Yeah. No, <laughs> you know, 100%. We, yeah. we have in our book, in our epilogue, and I think our epilogue is amazing. I'd love to read a few lines from it if you don't mind. Please, sure. please. But we talk about how the all method is more than a self-help technique. Okay, that the implications of awe go well beyond personal transformation. Awe touches everything. 
And perhaps most telling is the effect it has on others. We're wired to attune to others' behaviors and moods. Our nervous system senses the emotions of those around us. Just as being the recipient of a warm smile can lighten our mood, when we're in awe, those around us feel it too. Awe is contagious, and so practicing the awe method is one not so small way we can contribute to the world. In this book, we've covered how the awe method is grounded in science, that a whole body of science supports that awe changes lives. So we have a big simple crash ending to the power behind the simple practice of the awe method. If practiced frequently enough by enough people, a critical mass as it were, everyone would experience a significant heightened shift in consciousness. Awe changes us and when we share our awe, we change the world. Hmm. How can we be in awe of the natural world and destroy it? How can we be in awe of someone and physically or emotionally harm them? How can we be in awe of life itself and not live as if every day were a miracle? In awe, the tone of every conversation from the personal to the political shifts, from having an agenda to being open and curious. Our conversations impact how we raise our kids, how we help our aging parents, how we treat our spouse, how we participate in community, how we mentor or supervise people, how we govern a city and how we lead a nation. We can think of no downside to practicing the awe method because awe is the light, the appreciation of nature and different cultures, the curious and open mind, the generous and giving soul. These days we need awe more than ever. Awe awaits you and surrounds you in the ordinary moments of your life. Like the view of the stars that fill the night sky, awe is free and always available. All you need to do is pay attention to what you value, appreciate, and find amazing, wait, and then exhale and expand into the limited timelessness of awe. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, no, honestly, honestly, everything is sacred, right? If, if really viewed correctly, or not correctly, but essentially, if you're, if you're really in that state, and not even necessarily in that state, it's, it's more like uh, if you're... Uh, if you're really present to the moment and you can actually look at someone without putting like a like a label on them or uh, without having these obstructions to what is really there in front of you, which is like something that's beyond a label, beyond a construct, uh, mm -hmm. something that really if it felt correctly, like you, you could really feel like like, oh, like Leon right next to me or or you, you know, with us podcasting right now, like you could actually feel how important someone is like that you could actually feel a real relationship with them you wouldn't want to actually cause them harm you you would only want good things for them you would probably think less of yourself and more for their benefit and they would probably think that way for you as well so exactly yeah, if, if everyone in the world uh could actually get with that please you know that would be honestly that yeah, would be I beautiful mean yeah. It's the labels that, and the ego is what causes all the pain and the suffering, you know, saying that you're Republican or Democrat or you're pro-choice or anti-choice, or you're, you're, uh, you're, you're an Arab or you're a Jew or you're an Israeli yeah. or a Palestinian or a Russian or a Ukrainian, like all these labels just creates division and it, it, it's causing immense amount of suffering on this planet. And it's getting to the point where we're going to just implode and kill all of ourselves off if we don't wake ourselves up to how precious and beautiful all of us are.
you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a North Korean or South Korean or all these, these silly labels. We all have 99.9% .9 of the same genetics, history on this planet, ancestry, connection, we're all brothers, Jews and Arabs, we're all brothers, man. I mean, we- Literally <laughs> we have, living next door to each other. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like we should be celebrating each other's customs and holidays and appreciating them and the beautiful things about our, of our traditions are like something that we could be appreciative of rather than scared of. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's a radical mind. I don't think this is radical. I think I, I, I love, there's a book out there by um, uh, the myth of normal by um, the physician. I'm trying to like, talking about right Gabber, Mat Gabber, Gabber, Mator, yeah. uh, Gabby Mate's book, Mate. you know, mm -hmm. the myth of normal. Yeah. This is not normal. Like the way we're treating each other and we're, we're living our lives of so much hate and division. This is, this is sick. It's mentally, it's mental illness. Yeah. We think it's normal. You know, we think we're at the point where we think what Trump does and what, how he speaks in the acts is normal, but it's not. It's pathological and it's sick. Yeah. And we shouldn't have tolerance for it. Like we need to be mature and living to our full potential of humans and caring and loving each other and nourishing and life on this planet, taking care of the animals and all species and the diversity of the planet, <clears throat> not raping and pillaging our resources, not raping and pillaging each other, not killing each other off. There's plenty resources for everyone to be healthy and happy, but we're, we're just not there yet. But I think the awe is definitely one of the, the practices that can help. It's a definitely a healing balm. And, uh, we're, we're working on getting this taught in schools and not just in the healthcare arena. I mean, we need this more than ever right now. Yeah. I yeah love it. There was, um, uh, so you, you've made mention of this gentleman in your book, uh, you and Jake have made mention uh, Eckhart Tolle, right? So, or, or Eckhart Tolle, right? So he wrote The Power of Now, New Earth, other books as well. Uh, one of the things that he said, and this is like, I read this already 10 plus years ago, but something that really resonated with me is like, he said, the most essential uh, knowledge in the world is not yet made widely accessible, something like that. And then since then, with the advent of like social media, podcast and things like that, I, I look at like opportunities like these, like in our conversation with you, your conversations with other people on podcasts, the actual, the way that the book is getting a level of attention that maybe, you know, if this was released 20 years ago, it'd be more of like a word of mouth thing. Or maybe if you show up on like, I don't know, the Today Show or whatever was mainstream TV around that time. Uh, so, I mean, I, I really hope that this this message that's in the book really you know, uh, spreads to as many people as possible. Um, and I think that if any, if any time in the world, there was ever a shot at this kind of message really being spread, it's really now, especially with, you know, essentially the whole world being on the internet. If, if things can be spread, you know, if, if like even something silly or something, you know, I, I hate to put a, like a value judgment on this, but if something dumb can become viral, yeah. why can't something that's really essential and that could really help you and the world. Why can't that be viral? Yeah. So that's my hope. You know. Thank you. I hope the same thing. I mean, it would be wonderful. People would share their awe on TikTok. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would actually be cool. Yeah, that could become like a viral movement. Awe talks. Yeah, oh, you know, mm -hmm. share your awe. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, we're Jake and I. Uh, neither of us are. Um, our personalities aren't to be like 
giant celebrities, you know, and it, it'd be, but it would be great to find, you know, enough movement that this does take off. We hope that's our hope. And um, we're big believers in this body of work and the, the potential that exists within the, the transformation of human consciousness. I mean, we, we, we have to do this guys or, or none of us will be here. So we need to, we need to commit to, to cultivating that love and that kindness and awe in our lives and out into the world for yeah. our survival. Yeah. And podcasting certainly helps. All right. Yeah. So great point to end off on Alan, final questions before we wrap up. I'll be honest with you. This is usually where I ask, you know, okay. I, I really, honestly, I have like 20 more questions, but I guess we can't really do that. So fair enough. If we wanted to follow you, follow your work and, and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Yeah. So you can find us on the power of It's our website. And we do offer online classes uh, a few times a year. Um, I'm going to be doing a, a New Year's awe retreat in Mexico at a really beautiful resort uh, south of Puerto Vallarta next January of 2025. And still have some space available. So love to host people for a New Year and awe retreat. Hmm. Um, and, you know, we've been doing a lot of podcasts. Our book's available online at Amazon or at your local bookstore. And if I, I love connecting with people. I love hearing people's stories. I love being inspired by people. So if you want to connect with me personally, you can reach me at michael at thepowerbot.com. And we have a great Facebook private group, people um, that are really committed to this practice. We share our awe every day and inspire each other. So if that interests you, reach out to me. I'd love to welcome you to our group as well. Oh, I love that. All right, Michael, thank you so much, man. This was excellent. This is awesome. Honestly, thank you again for coming on. Thank you, Leon and Alan. It's such an honor to be here and um, share awe together. And thank you, listeners. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. We've definitely seized the moment today. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, take Michael. Care. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.